I'm William O'Flaherty, and welcome to All About Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast. This episode features a book new for 2024, coming out January 30th. While I commonly do author interviews, today's is different. The book is entitled Once a Queen, a novel. Although I focused on writers of fiction other than Lewis before, this specific genre is the first for this show, young adult fantasy. My guest today is Sarah Author, a best-selling writer who up to now is more known for her variety of nonfiction work that we'll touch on later. Welcome to All About Jack, Sarah. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, now, before diving into Once a Queen, which I enjoyed reading ahead of time, let's explore the Lewis connection. You were a founding member of the annual C.S. Lewis Festival in northern Michigan. So briefly, tell us about that, along with how Lewis has influenced your writing. Oh, yeah. The the Lewis Festival in northern Michigan um, has been around for over 20 years now, which is just amazing to me. Um, their tagline is to Narnia and the North. Um, but it was during a time when my husband and I lived in Petoskey um, and there at the, there is a, a film producer up there named David Krause who um, had just produced The Magic Never Ends, which uh, some people might remember aired on PBS nationally. Um, and it was just the, the story of Lewis's conversion to Christianity, basically, um, and the role that Tolkien played in that. Um, so David Krause was, is his name. He came to the church where my husband and I were working and he said, can we do a showing of this film? And what he did not know is that Tom and I were graduates of Wheaton. I went there specifically because of the Inklings collection and was an English major of, you know, and so, but, you know, here's this guy just wanting to do a screening and he found these two Wheaton grads who were like, let's do a festival. And before long, there were arts organizations, the Arts Council, um, local schools, many churches, even restaurants, bookshops, everything involved um, in this very small town in northern Michigan. And it's been it's been amazing. Um, and that's, you know, as a, a founding board member, I've gotten to you know interact with numerous different kinds of speakers over the years. We brought Douglas Gresham one year. Um, and Philip Yancey and, you know, just a, a variety of, of people have been guests and, and it's just been, it's been lovely, but, uh, you alluded to my, my Lewis connection that personally, you know, how Lewis has influenced me. Um, and some of my earliest memories are my father reading to my sister and myself, um, as young kids, uh, reading the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and getting to the point where the wolf um, chases Susan and telling him it's too scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course I was hooked at that point. So we kept reading and um, I would, you know, it just became part of the landscape of my imagination and Lewis's works became deeply uh, formative to my, my theology um, going on to study seminary at Duke, you know, Duke Divinity School, I mean, study theology, that is, at Duke Divinity School's seminary. It was, yeah, he's just been a huge, huge part of that for my life. Okay, and I'm sure there might be a few things here and there as we talk about your book that uh, might uh, reference Lewis. I, I noticed that various things besides the uh, obvious title, per se, right. uh, yeah. has some influence. But, uh, yeah, so now, uh, 
Once a queen tells about a teenager finding about uh, some shocking family secrets while visiting her grandmother in England, that has to do with another world. Mm -hmm. Now, in the first chapter, we find the main character, Eva, narrating that she, she half believes in fairy tales, but this particular summer at the age of 14, she was, quote, too old to believe anymore. Well, my, my question is, why do fairy tales delight us so much? And did you go through a period in your own life where you left them or stopped believing in them? Oh, it, this I could write about this for the rest of my life. It's actually animated a lot of my writing um, in nonfiction, too. So I've written books about spiritual themes in The Lord of the Rings, in The Chronicles of Narnia. I wrote a spiritual biography of Madeline Lengel, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time. Um, and and so fiction for me, and specifically fantasy and fairy tale, um, has been just a really rich place where I, where spiritual themes can be explored. Um, and, and not just straight fantasy where it takes place completely in other worlds, but I particularly love portal fantasy where other worlds are breaking in on this one, or there's the possibility like in a wrinkle in time of traveling to other places, right? Um, and so... And I even love magical realism. So it, many readers of Once a Queen have noticed the the echoes of the secret garden in this story, of the you know that that something mysterious is going on. There's some life that's bubbling up in the world that has the possibility to heal. And how do we engage that instead of push it away? Um, so those are those are all things that have animated um, my writing and. And like Eva, my main character, um, I, at age 14, in fact, specifically, when when young adults are starting to make the turn towards adulthood, they're, begin they're beginning to fear that they have to let go of the things they loved as children. Um, some of them are very quick to want to grow up and others like myself at the time are, are actually getting kind of sad, you know, that you might have to give it up. And that nostalgia for the kind of wide-eyed wonder of childhood that you you fear that you have to leave behind. Um, and that's, I think, where Eva is. She, she's too old to believe anymore, of course. And you, you kind of hear her saying that as a way to like, this is her little pep talk she's giving herself as she's becoming an adult, right? Like, we have to give this up. But she still half believes them. And I think... I, that was really important to me because I think there's lot there are lots of 14 year olds and 15 year olds and young adults out there who who are in that same place. They're not in a hurry to grow up. They are worried about having to leave behind some things that they really love. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, now taking a kind of a big picture approach here at the start, uh, how would you describe Eva at the start of the book? And what lessons does she learn during her mysterious and pivotal summer uh, at uh, Carrick Hall? Mm. Right. So she she arrives at Carrick Hall, which is her grandmother's estate in the West Midlands. Um, and she has never met this grandmother before. So a lot of what's animating Eva's initial entry into this place is trying, like, what is this mystery? Why? have my parents been estranged from this woman my entire life? Why have we never met before? Um, and her mother has been very um, kind of tight-lipped about all of it over the years. There's definitely some kind of distance and nobody's talking about it. So there's that mystery. Um, and 
like a child, she has this childlike curiosity. She's still partly a kid, right? So she's wanting to figure all this out. And the, the challenge for young people is what do I get away with, you know, with that childlike curiosity? Like how far can I push? How far can I explore before I start to get in trouble? It's one thing if you're six years old and you are where you're not supposed to be in a grand manor house or, you know, you're breaking the rules, like you're six years old. So people give you a little leeway when you're 14, mm -hmm. you know what the rules are but you still want to know so badly what's going on. So how is Eva going to unearth these secrets, um, including why her grandmother's behavior becomes so erratic uh, at night in particular? Um, she seems to be almost a different person, no longer cold and distant, um, but warm and alive and seems to think that she's maybe in in a fairyland kind of world. So Eva is just like the curiosity drives her. Um, but not that curiosity kills the cat every time, but this is the lesson of fairyland, isn't it? Is when we get too curious, things mm. happen that don't, uh, that are not awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so without too many spoilers, by the time we see her at the end of the book, um, she is uh, wondering if brokenness in relationships in our world can actually be healed. If, um, and if, if not right now, maybe someday. And in the meantime, how do we love the people um, with whom we've had difficult relationships? How do we still sit with them in the pain and not just walk away? Hmm. Well, speaking of the pain and brokenness, um, your your book does contain some uh, heavier themes. Uh, why was it important for you to craft a novel for you know young adults, the the target? Although we do encourage people older uh, to to read mm -hmm. uh, to, to include those heavier themes of grief and even generational trauma, uh, while also uh, being fun and and imaginative. Oh, I this is where. Um... Tolkien's essay on fairy stories is so important. Um, he talks about the ways that fairy stories give us permission to probe into uh, questions of, of ultimate significance. And, and Lewis writes about this as well in some of his essays, um, that sometimes fairy stories say what needs to be said, right? Is one of the titles of one of his, of Lewis's essays. And it's the form of the fairy tale that allows us to um, it, explore the theme of trespassing, right? Like almost every fairy tale, there's some something you're not supposed to do. Jack the giant killer does it. And like, <laughs> you know, where he comes home and he's sold a cow, but only for five beans, right? There's just, it begins with somebody not doing what they were supposed to or doing what they weren't supposed to. Um, and, and I think that um, for many teenagers and I've worked with teens in church settings as a both full-time and volunteer. I'm a middle school substitute teacher. I have a 13 year old and a 10 year old right now. A lot of what is baffling about the grown-up world is the mysterious pain that grown-ups around them seem to be carrying that they're not talking about. Um, and that was my own experience as a child with my maternal grandmother um, who we lost to cancer when I was 14. So, so I felt like it was important to go there um, and give my teenager the, a similar experience 
where these are people she cares about and loves and she doesn't understand why the why they're behaving the way they are and not talking about it and how far can she probe um, before she pushes them away and is that really her fault or are you know the, these are generational questions right um and so this is I think for a lot of teenagers um, that that sort of separation as you're starting to become an independent person and separate from your family, um, you have this kind of liminal space where you're not sure what these relationships are going to look like when you come out on the other side and you're now an adult, right? Mm -hmm. So this was this was some of what um, I was giving my my teen readers permission to explore. Um, and interestingly, I, I got some feedback from, I have a teen launch team um, here in Lansing that's helping like celebrate the book and they're giving, they're blurbing it for Penguin Random House. It's just adorable. I'm loving every minute of it. Um, but there's a 12 year old reader and she's an avid reader. Um, and she loved those intergenerational relationships. That was her blurb, that that was very realistic to her um, and that they were still trying to love each other in the midst of um the 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 tensions in the family i thought that was pretty significant it wasn't the mm -hmm. plot and the exciting pace or whatever it was those relationships mm -hmm. very interesting well now yeah uh, obviously then there is a complex relationship between eva and her grandmother so mm -hmm. discuss that and what you hope the readers take away you've been sharing some about but if, if you could go further about that yeah well, what Eva begins to learn um, is that something, some great tragedy happened to her grandmother long ago that colors everything now. Um, and the way that her grandmother has responded is to just shut her heart down and not, um, not get too close to people um, and not um, it, it particularly is really averse to anything, any hint of magic or fairyland or fairy stories. Um, she wants nothing to do with those things. But, but the rest of the staff at the house and some of the other people that Eva meets um, have a different story. And they, they seem to believe that these fairy tales that Eva grew up reading, um, which we get snippets of throughout the book interspersed in the chapters, were actually true. And not only that, but Eva's family is somehow connected to those stories. Um, and so now she's beginning to wonder, why would you turn your back? If, if grandmother was involved in some way in, in the world of this fairyland story, why would you turn your back on that? It was so wonderful. Adventures and, you know, grand conquests and like, you know, you've become someone special in that other world. Why would you, why would you walk away from that? Um, and and for me, the relationship is really about how do we interact with somebody who was once a believer, you know, and maybe it's faith, maybe it's stories, whatever, whatever that belief is. For, for me, I'm a person of Christian faith. So you're walking alongside of somebody who once was a believer and is now some great brokenness has pushed them away from that. Um how do you how do you do that uh without trying to manipulate their story or manhandle their story or make it your story how do you allow them the dignity of being a complex human being with their own story 
um, without foreclosing on where that story will go. Um, how do we how do we love people well um, who are not in the same place we are or would want them to be or um, and I'm not saying that like where I am and my own faith is like where everyone should be. I just mean we're all in a journey and it's nice to have companions on that path. Mm -hmm. And then somebody leaves the path and you're like, um, I was enjoying you. Where are you now? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't want to do this no. by myself. Right. Um, and is that the future that like any trauma or suffering will push us away? Is that really where this goes? Um, and I think a lot of teenagers uh, who have grown up in among households of faith uh, struggle with that. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll talk some more about uh, that uh, here before the end of the uh, interview, but that's uh, very interesting. I wanted to step away for a moment from Once a Queen and have you tell us a little bit about your nonfiction work and where people can find you online. Yeah. So, so this is the 20th year of my um, role as a published author. So 20 years ago, right around when the C.S. Lewis Festival had been starting, um, I published a book called Walking with Frodo, A Devotional Journey Through the Lord of the Rings with Tyndale. And it came out right as the final movie was in theaters of the Lord of the Rings mm. um, epic films by Peter Jackson. Um, so it was a very like timely or had a huge cultural hook. It did very well for Tyndale and basically launched my writing career. Um, but it was specifically aimed at teenagers. And at the time, I had just served for seven years full-time as the youth director of a large church. And so I was always looking for ways to engage teenagers in conversations about spiritual themes and great stories and literature and film and that kind of thing as a hook towards um, just, you know, discussing things of ultimate concern. And, um, and this was like the perfect marriage of my English degree and my love of teens and my love of, uh, theology and just talking about things that were of ultimate significance. And um, so it was, it was just a, we had a blast with that and um, got to write many more. I wrote one about the Hobbit and the, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Um, I wrote one about Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice for teen girls um, and all as with movie hooks at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, early to mid two thousands that led to um grown-ups asking me okay so these are this is these are some of the classics that are you know we want to expose kids to but what else should we be reading what else should i be reading as a grown-up what else should should teens be reading um which then led to uh anthologies actually with paraclete press uh that follow the the calendar of the church year it's readings for different seasons of the the church year um for people of, of christian faith and so one is for ordinary time, one is for Advent and Christmas, one is for Lent and Easter. Um, and that just, you know, again, was an opportunity to explore why do stories and the imagination have such formative, such a formative role in our faith formation? I mean, that that to me is is the question. We see it in Lewis's own narrative. Mm -hmm. We see it in Madeline Langle, who I've written about in A Light So Lovely, which was that that um, spiritual biography of Madeline, um, stories play can play a significant role um, in pe people's journey of faith. And why is that? And and how do we 
um, continue to have those conversations that are formative. Mm, yeah, very good. Well, now, uh, shifting back to uh, Once a Queen, before the, your book starts, uh, you note that all the characters are fictional, but a certain professor is based very loosely on two historical uh, figures. One is Dorothy L. Sayers. Uh, how did you come uh, about uh, doing that, and uh, and then how did you weave that in, into your story? My Yeah, I had, you know, you Part of the narrative voice in fairy tale is the authoritative figure, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are moments uh, in um, when you reading Andrew Lang, for instance, sometimes that voice comes through of like once upon a time, and then the narrator has some like you know is the one walking you through uh, and has authority about now you understand this is how magic apples work, um, or even in the Chronicles of Narnia, when Lewis's voice as the narrator breaks through and it'd be as if, you know, Arthur returned and the Knights of the Round Table. And I say the sooner the better. Um, so, so I think I needed an authorial voice in the book beyond Eva. It's told in first person from her perspective, but she's 14 mm. and she doesn't know, like, Part of the mystery is she's trying to figure out what really happened. So I needed this kind of counter voice that is tearing, telling fairy tales, who is a professor kind of figure, um, who is a Cornelius, you know, for Prince Caspian, mm -hmm. who is um, the wisdom of some of the characters in the secret garden who are telling, um, you know, who are telling our main character what's going on. So that's that's where this professor came from and i needed her to have matriculated from a you know an oxford or cambridge in time to have been a professor <laughs> in the 30s 40s and 50s um at a women's college so she had to matriculate um in the 20s and the first class that did that was dorothy sayer's class so i was like wow. well there she is we're just mm -hmm. gonna she was you know she never married um, my professor never married. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I just, I, it was a voice I, I love. And even though Sayers didn't write fairy tales, um, I just, I wanted that kind of strong or, you know, author, authorial, authoritative voice. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And, and it worked quite well, I believe. Oh, thank you. That's <laughs> fantastic. Yay. Uh, you just made my day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Glad to. Well, now, while Once a Queen is a standalone story, it's actually the first in a series. I don't think we've mentioned that yet. So what can we expect from the next installment, which uh, I guess is already ready to, to roll or the story's finished? Anyway, either way, it's called Once a Castle. So mm -hmm. well, what can people expect? Yeah, well, and you had asked me where can people find me online, and I forgot to say oh. saraharthur.com is is kind of the hub for all of that. Um, but I'm also online on social media, uh, Instagram at, at Holy Dreaming. Um, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, but in any case, that's where, you know, updates, I'll, I'll be doing updates. You can sign up for a newsletter mailing list about Once a Castle. And the third book will... Uh, Right now, the working title is Once a Crown. Um, so it is, it is a, a trilogy. It is a cycle. Um, and Once a Castle is, it, ha it takes place several years after the end of Once a Queen. 
and it features her friend Frankie's younger siblings. So in mm -hmm. Once a Queen, they are very little, you know, they're, um, they're quite young, but in Once a Castle, Jack, the middle brother, becomes the the featured one of the featured characters um along with the rastigar's grandson you might remember they run the bookshop and the um and the tea shop in uh upper wolvern my mm. invented west midlands village <laughs> um and so that that i'm excited about because if you have a jack then of course you also have to have giants wow <laughs> Well, there's a lot more we could uh, talk about, I'm sure, about some influences and in characters' names and such. But uh, let's go ahead and wrap up with one final question. And that is, uh, Once a Queen is published by Waterbook, which is a, a Penguin Random House's faith-based imprint. Um, how do you hope it will get past uh, your story to get past those watchful dragons that Lewis uh, spoke about? Yeah, and I write about those watchful dragons all all over the place when especially in youth ministry uh articles i've written um in i wrote a book called uh the god hungry imagination about the role of stories and the imagination in spiritual formation um and that is specifically i talk about how um teenagers have very big and very vigilant watchful dragons <laughs> um so um what some of what I love about the genre of fairy tale and fantasy is its its ability to um, kind of sneak through the back door of the imagination when the front door of like reason and the intellect is slammed and locked. Um, and we see that in you know Lewis's response as a teenager himself to Fantasties by George MacDonald. Um, and my story, you know, those echoes of faith are there and um, those echoes of classic fairy tales by writers of faith like Madeline Lengel and C.S. Lewis and um, Tolkien even. Uh, so anyone who's paying attention is going to pick up on those. Um, but, you know, I, I was really cautious about um, just like bludgeoning people over the head <laughs> with mm -hmm. my themes or my, um, my, the spiritual themes, um, because I felt that, you know, one of the things that, that Christians, and, and I, I say this as one of them do a lot, unfortunately, is we don't actually trust the imagination. <laughs> um, Mm -hmm. uh, even is particularly if we go on the more conservative side of American Christianity, um, there's a real suspicion of right. the imagination. And I posit in my writings, my nonfiction work, that the imagination is a space where um, where we can trust that if something is, you know, if, if someone needs to receive something in a story, um, that if they have ears, they will hear, right? So... Um, this is this is part of the challenge um, as a person of faith, but I also don't want to apologize for the elements that people find in it of mm -hmm. spiritual themes, because the longer you marinate in something, of course, that flavor is going to come out in everything you do. Um, so, you know, I, I have friends who are not people of faith who gave me fantastic feedback, 
you know, on all of that. So I hope that it is an accessible story, regardless of where somebody is in their spiritual journey. Okay. Well then, uh, again, this is once a queen, uh, officially releasing January 30th, 2024. If you're listening to this after that, then you can definitely get it. Uh, but it is available for pre-order if, uh, I could do get this out in time beforehand and then people can look forward to any projected date for the, uh, second one. I know next year, sometime next year. in 2025, um, <laughs> the story takes place over um, midsummer, the summer solstice. So, you know, it'd be fun as a, um, as a summer read. So, but, you know, a lot depends on, can we, uh, can we get all the pieces put together before? <laughs> oh, okay. And before, the you know, before, like, cause ideally it would come out in early, early in the year, which is mm -hmm. what we're doing for Once a Queen. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll keep people okay. posted. Right. Yeah. And uh, and again, r remind everyone of the uh, website. We'll have it in the uh, show notes or the d description where they can visit you online. Yeah, saraharthur.com. And that's Sarah with an H. And from there, it's kind of the hub where you can find me all over the place. Um, but I'm also on social media at Holy Dreaming. Uh, I think I'm on Twitter as Sarah Arthur Writes. Okay. Great. Well, uh, Sarah, thank you for being on uh, the All About Jack podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah about her book, Once a Queen. Again, it will be released January 30th, 2024. Again, I'm William O'Flaherty. My podcast, All About Jack, has been around since 2011. My YouTube channel is called Knowing and Understanding C.S. Lewis. Be sure to check out my new short features for 2024, Misquote Mondays, and Screwtape Saturdays. And then at least once a month, I release the latest on C.S. Lewis that focuses on timely news. Check the description or show notes for links to items mentioned in the show today. Finally, everything I do related to Lewis is centralized around my website, EssentialCSLewis.com. And in case you didn't know, I've written two Lewis-themed books. The misquotable C.S. Lewis was released in 2018. It examines 75 quotations credited to him that he either didn't write, or paraphrases of something he did, or without the context could be misunderstood. Then in 2016, my enhanced study guide to the Screwtape Letters came out. It's called C.S. Lewis Goes to Hell. Thanks again for listening. Please consider liking and sharing this episode with others.